Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This episode is sponsored by The Black Tux, Ship Station, and Dollar Shave Club. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. In the lawless days of prohibition, Dutch Schultz was the black sheep of the mob. Dutch Schultz never wanted to negotiate. He had a short temper. He was just scary and unpleasant to be around. He was a gangster who reveled in violence and in finding increasingly imaginative ways of torturing and killing his victims. Dutch Schultz got this idea that he would encase feet in concrete and dump them into the Harlem River. It was known as concrete legs. So you do not want to double-cross this man. He's got a temper, and he's perfectly happy to kill even people he's worked very closely with for years. This is Mafia. Nate Henley is author of The Mafia, A Guide to an American Subculture. He spent years studying Dutch Schultz and believes Dutch's problems began when, as a child, he was abandoned by his father. He was born Arthur Flegenheimer, so there is a sense of rejection. And by all accounts, he was quite upset when his father left him. So you could say logically that he feels the same sense of rejection when people turn against him. He's an outsider and revels in that image, but he wants sort of that acceptance underneath it all. Arthur Flegenheimer started out in low-rent jobs around New York. He also fell in with a gang of street kids in the Bronx. Before long, he was locked up for petty theft. He went to prison when he was a teenager and spent about a year and a half in prison. On his release, young Flagenheimer was determined to shed his past and show the world he could be somebody through any means necessary. His first move was to ditch his father's name. Came out and was sort of welcomed with open arms by his old street gang buddies. And they all said, well, you know, Arthur Flegenheimer doesn't quite have enough zip to it. And they all remembered they had been this old-time gangster from a generation before named Dutch Schultz. Why don't you just borrow his name? That has more zip to it. And this is quite a common thing, you know, that gangsters either adapt a nickname themselves or uh, are given a nickname by the media. Um, Al Capone being an example, his real name was Alphonse, changed it to Al, it's more American. Uh, and he's nicknamed Scarface Al by the media. He prefers to go by the nickname Snorky. Uh, that's his sort of little term of endearment. Uh, Charles Luciano being another example that his nickname in the media was Lucky Luciano. Uh, so it's very common to adapt a new name. It's almost like adapting a stage persona that, you know, that I'm this new gangster, I'm this new tough guy, and Dutch Schultz does have more of a zip to it, and Arthur Flegenheimer is a bit clunky. Schultz was less concerned with his appearance. Yeah, Schultz is a very unusual gangster in that he doesn't really look like a gangster. He's got sort of greasy, dirty hair that he combs to the side, cheap suits, cheap shirts. He once famously said only a sucker will pay more than $2 for a shirt. He's got crumbs on him. He looks like a slob. New York Times said he looked like an ill-dressed vagrant. Uh, a chorus girl once famously said he looks like Bing Crosby with his face bashed in. He's not an attractive guy, and he's not a particularly fierce-looking guy. But behind the bland exterior was a brutal individual, 
and Artie Flegenheimer, now Dutch Schultz, was determined to break into New York's criminal underworld. After the break. There's this magic age when it feels like every single one of your friends is getting married. And sure, you have those friends who just want to get hitched at the courthouse and have drinks afterwards. But for every laid-back, casual couple you know, there are two or three others who want to put on the wedding of the century. In those situations, you need a great tux. And I'll be honest, the sleek black tux I wore to that evening wedding in Manhattan isn't going to work for that outdoor wedding in Vermont. So options are important. No matter what the occasion, I want to find the right fit and the right style. And that's where the black tux comes to the rescue. The black tux is the easy way for guys to rent suits and tuxedos online. With the black tux new fit algorithm, I didn't have to awkwardly measure myself or ask a friend for help. The black tux did it for me. Plus, the black tux free home try-on let me see the fit and feel the quality of my suit months before my event. Whether you're going for a stylist selected outfit or building a custom look, the Black Tux has tons of new suits and tuxedos to choose from for your big spring events. Stand out at your event for the right reasons with the Black Tux. To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com mafia. That's theblacktux.com M-A-F-I-A for $20 off your purchase. The Black Tux, premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered. In 1919, the Prohibition era began. With the production and sale of alcohol now illegal, those who lived outside the law saw a golden opportunity. Well, Schultz, uh, like a lot of young men, sensed that Prohibition was really sort of, you know, this is going to be an incredible moneymaker. Author David Petruja. Prohibition is a tremendous opportunity for every gangster in America. Every fellow who's in for the fast buck. As gangsters across the country were getting into the illegal production and distribution of booze, young Dutch Schultz got his big break, working as the muscle riding shotgun to protect the illegal shipments. Uh, well, Schultz started off, you know, as a street thug. Prohibition came in. And he quickly became uh, associated with gangs doing bootlegging, which is selling illegal alcohol. He began working for Arnold Rothstein, who was one of the most prominent gangsters in America at the time, arguably the most prominent. He was one of many underlings, so it wasn't like he was Rothstein's right-hand man. But this definitely gave him a taste of what power could be like and what it could be like being a leading uh, organized crime figure. Dutch Schultz was learning from the best the new king of crime in America. Rothstein at the time was a financier more than anything. He would give money to gangs that wanted to do various activities, be it sell drugs, sell illegal alcohol, do some sort of racket. And he sort of saw, you know, how you could control things from behind the scene. Whether he learned those lessons well is another matter, but this is his first exposure to a really big gangster. David Petruja. Arnold Rothstein is essentially the founder of Organized Crime, Inc. In New York, he is numero uno, number one, the big man, the big bankroll, the guy who puts everything together. Rothstein began molding rough young hoodlums in his own image. Author Eric Desenhall. Arnold Rothstein was known uh, as the brain. He was considered a very brilliant 
refined mentor. He was admired by Jewish gangsters. He was admired by Italian gangsters. He was an extremely pivotal personality in the psyche of a lot of people. In Rothstein, Schultz perhaps found the father figure he was searching for. But Dutch had a rival, another Rothstein protege with a big future. Schultz meets Charles, quote unquote, Lucky Luciano, who is an Italian, who's sort of this other striving young gangster. Uh, they're both sort of roughly the same age. They're both sort of have an eye on the big, you know, the big picture. They're both ambitious. And they're not really close, like they're not buddy-buddy, but they do associate with each other and keep sort of an eye on each other and sort of they regard each other as peers. Uh, but they were both doing many of the same things, um, working for bootleggers, selling illegal alcohol, uh, you know, muscling in on various rackets, that sort of thing. But Luciano was a very different character to Schultz. Luciano learned fast while Schultz was stuck in the old ways. Luciano was less impulsive, less of a lone wolf. I think he was realizing that there is, there's much to be learned by looking at your mentors and, or, you know, uh, establishing a mentor to start with and sort of learning from them. Author of Five Families, Selwyn Rabb. Arnold Rothstein could see the difference in gangsters. Guys like Schultz were just old fashioned killers. Luciano was smart, slick, Realize if you could do it non-violently and get away with it, it was a lot better than doing it violently. Luciano was a very different character because although he was, you know, quite happy to be violent, especially in his early days, he quickly grew out of that and quickly saw the limits of being personally violent and the limits of being sort of a hothead, where Schultz never really grew out of that. So the same person that Schultz was when he met Luciano that was the same Schultz that he was towards the end of his life, whereas Luciano, on the other hand, became more refined and um, sort of became more behind the scenes. And you could tell how much they paid attention just in certain very shallow sort of fashion sense that Luciano began, you know, his manners improved after being with Rothstein. He learned how to dress properly, learned how to sort of behave himself in restaurants, whereas Schultz quite clearly did not pick up on any of that and continued to dress like a slob, look like a slob, and carry himself like a slob. And it sounds like a minor detail, but it does show a big personality split between the two, that Luciano was obviously willing, more willing to learn than Schultz is, who's still determined to do his own thing. He admires Rothstein, he likes his power, he likes what he's doing with the rackets, but he's clearly not willing to model himself after Rothstein, and that is a very big distinction between the two. Arnold Rothstein concentrated on Luciano as his young protege. And once again, Dutch Schultz found himself abandoned by a father figure. Eric Desenhall. Dutch Schultz was not someone who tolerated jealousy very, very well. If you were not with him, you were his arch enemy, and you were likely to end up at the bottom of the East River. Uh, that's how things were adjudicated. It was immediate violence. Under Rothstein's guidance, Lucky Luciano worked smart, hooking up with a young talent like criminal genius Meyer Lansky and the charismatic Bugsy Siegel. But Dutch ignored Rothstein's lessons and formed his gang from a group of old thug pals from the Bronx. Nate Hendley. Schultz's gang was primarily made up of buddies that he hung around with in the Bronx 
And on one hand, that's very good that he's loyal to his old friends, but he didn't really have a big picture vision. Dutch didn't understand the value of strategy, only terror. His gang included tough guys and thugs from his old neighborhood, like Joey No, Bo Weinberg, Jules Martin, and Vincent Mad Dog Cole. Vincent Cole was one of Dutch Schultz's old street gang buddies from when they were quite young. Uh, he was Irish, which shows sort of the multi-ethnic character of Schultz's gang. Um, but even by gangland standards, he was violently unstable and sort of very erratic, very impulsive. And let's put it this way, he made Dutch Schultz look like a conservative, middle-of-the-road, uh, you know, moderate kind of leader. That, you know, Schultz, for all his sort of impulsivity and all his violence, wasn't a stupid man. I mean, he was quite a good judge of character in a lot of ways. And he sensed that Vincent Cole was very good at assassinating people and intimidation and maiming people and being a thug. One of their first acts struck straight at the man who had rejected him. They started their own cut-rate bootlegging operation to compete directly with Arnold Rothstein's high-end setup. Needle beer is very low-quality alcohol, which uh, was made by the gangsters themselves, not by sort of a proper brewer or distillery. And no one would normally stock this, but it was prohibition. At first, no one wanted Schultz's subpar bootlegged beer until they'd experienced his sales pitch. It's being promoted by gangsters, and when somebody shows up at your illegal saloon with a shotgun and says, we'd like you to buy 10 cases of this, you don't really turn them down. Uh, so that was what they were doing. Uh, Joey Noah and Schultz established this empire across the Bronx, selling lousy sort of what was called needle beer, um, low-quality beer to rather reluctant uh, bartenders who didn't have much choice but stalking it. Schultz was determined to make his mark in the criminal underworld. He would send a message to the gangs of New York. If they wouldn't respect him, they would fear him. One of Schultz's first sort of opponents in his sort of grandia, grand uh, bootlegging empire is a bartender named Joe Rock, who is a stubborn uh, Irishman who refuses to buy his low quality beer. And Schultz at this point, number one, wants to make a point saying, don't oppose me. And number two, has a very fiery, impulsive temper. So he kidnaps Joe Rock. Schultz decided to make an example of him after the break. Whether you work for a huge corporation or you're starting your own e-commerce side hustle, you want to make sure you're making the best, most cost-effective choices for your business. And with so many delivery options, how do you know what's best? Well, I highly recommend ShipStation. ShipStation is a web-based shipping solution for e-commerce retailers. Designed to streamline the fulfillment process, ShipStation integrates with an enormous number of carriers, marketplaces, and shopping carts. I'm not exaggerating, the list is insanely long. Shopify, Squarespace, Etsy, eBay, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, and Amazon are just a few of the selling channels available to you on ShipStation. And in terms of carriers, ShipStation integrates with FedEx, UPS, USPS, Stamps.com, DHL, Shipware, Canada Post, and so many others. ShipStation puts them all at my fingertips and helps me find the best rates for each carrier I use. I was creating shipping labels and packing slips within a few minutes of signing up. It's just that simple and easy to use. 
Right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days. Plus, get a special bonus when you use promo code MAFIA. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in M-A-F-I-A. That's ShipStation.com. Enter M-A-F-I-A. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Rock wasn't the first to get a beating at the hands of the mob, but what Schultz did next would take gangland retribution into a horrific new realm. They hang him up by his thumbs uh, on a meat hook, torture him in various horrible ways, and then just for, out of sheer spite, wrap a bandage around his eyes that has been liberally dipped in a gonorrheal sore. Rock's family paid a ransom of $35,000 for his freedom and Schultz let him go. But it wasn't the end of his torture. So when Joe Rock is released after his family pays a heavy ransom, uh, he subsequently goes blind from infection. And Schultz is, you know, this pleases Schultz to no end because uh, he's got a bit of a sadistic nature and he's proven that he's the toughest guy in the block. Do not mess with me, buy my beer, or something horrible will happen to you as it happened to Mr. Rock. The story of Joe Rock spread like wildfire, and it ensured no one said no to Dutch Schultz. Eric Desenhall. Dutch Schultz is a psychopath, um, and I think that there's a tendency to look at gangsters as if they all are sociopathic, and I think that there's a spectrum. Somebody like Dutch Schultz has no remorse. He has no conscience. His next move would be his riskiest yet, as his gang set its sights on the notorious Manhattan bootlegger, Jack Legs Diamond, a mobster bankrolled by Schultz's former mentor, Arnold Rothstein. You know, they knew they were encroaching on Legs Diamond's territory, which was a very bad move, and it didn't seem to bother them. So this, again, I think shows a sign of Schultz's behavior, uh, that he's on one hand fearless, but he's also a bit of a lunatic. Diamond's gang didn't take well to this new rivalry. They bid Schultz welcome by shooting his closest confidant, Joey No. So he's genuinely close to Joey, very upset when he dies, and Joey does die in a rather horrible way. He's shot, and it takes him three weeks to die, by which point he weighs 100 pounds. He's just lost a huge amount of weight. He's withering away in a hospital. It's a very brutal end. This is one of the few times in Schultz's adult life where he's genuinely upset by something happening to someone other than himself, that he was actually close to Joey Noah, that he was partners with him and friends with him. And as one of the signs of their friendship, Joey was one of the only people who could call Schultz by his original name, Arthur, which is something that Schultz let almost no one do. And Schultz also was willing to accept orders from Joey, which is very unusual. Like, he does not do this later in life. You know, no one orders Schultz around. So he's genuinely saddened by this. On the other hand, it increases his resolve to be a lone wolf, that he never again gets a partner. He's willing to make tactical uh, alliances, uh, but he's very much his own man at this point. Schultz struck back launching several attempts on Diamond's life. In one incident, thugs broke into a hotel Diamond was staying at and sprayed the place with machine guns. Eventually, 
he was forced to skip town, leaving Manhattan free for Schultz to take over. There's more to the story after the break. Okay, guys, it's time for a little spring cleaning. And hey, make sure you don't forget the bathroom. That rusted canister of shaving cream in the medicine cabinet, those mismatched overpriced blades, Dollar Shave Club will help you freshen things up with their high-quality products. Members like me get everything we need for our morning routine delivered right to our doors. Now, Dollar Shave Club is more than just razors, but let's talk about razors for a second before we move on. Every time I go into a pharmacy or a drugstore, I can never remember what type of blade I have and what kind of new blades I need to buy. It's a little bit of a, a confusing process. And the great thing about Dollar Shave Club is that you don't have to go through that process. And it's also a lot less expensive. And since DSC delivers everything to you, you don't have to set foot in a store, wandering the aisles, hunting for razors, shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, none of it. Their Dr. Carver's shave butter is fantastic. It goes on clear so you can see where you're shaving. Clean up your bathroom and your morning routine. Join Dollar Shave Club today, and for just $5 with free shipping, you'll get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and one-wipe Charlie's. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com mob. That's dollarshaveclub.com mob. In 1928, Arnold Rothstein was assassinated during a business meeting. The following year, a mafia summit was called in Atlantic City. The Atlantic City Conference was held in 1929, and it was sort of a gathering of all the leading mobsters in uh, mostly the northeastern part of the United States at the time. And it's a bit of a misnomer to use the word conference because that implies sort of a corporate agenda and people taking minutes and there being a tight schedule. This is more of a loose gathering of the bosses. There are some important issues on the table, however. It was the biggest meeting of American organized crime mobsters in history. They want to sort of discuss uh, delineating territories. They want to discuss some sort of informal rules. This is where they establish that if you want to kill another mob boss, you kind of have to get permission of, you know, other mob bosses first. You don't just sort of arbitrarily go out and do things. Uh, the, uh, the conference was also held to an extent uh, because gangsters were worried about Al Capone in Chicago because he was getting sort of a little out of hand at the time. He was showing a lot of impulse control problems himself. Uh, he was arguably into the cocaine at the time and was showing a lot of instability. And the man calling the shots in Atlantic City was none other than Dutch's arch-rival, Lucky Luciano. Luciano really is sort of the grand master at the Atlantic City Conference. You know, he's very much sort of becoming the grand sort of poobah of organized crime in North America um, and sort of is becoming sort of the king of, you know, the king of the heap and is very much sort of moving into that role. Uh, people listen to him. People very much respect his views. Now with a major presence in Manhattan, Schultz felt ready to stake his claim to Rothstein's vast money-making empire. Schultz is 
you know, a respected sort of considered a rising tough guy gangster, but has nowhere near the status that Lucky Luciano has at this point. If we're going to compare it again to corporation, you know, Luciano at this point would be very close to the CEO, whereas Schultz would be more of a middle management at this point, that he's on the rise, but he hasn't quite hit his pinnacle yet. And so his his opinions don't hold nearly as much weight as Lucky Luciano's do at this point. Lucky wanted more than just a slice of Rothstein's organization. He wanted to recreate the entire mob in his old boss's image and usher in a new era of cooperation between the crime families. Luciano is very much looking at organized crime as an organization, you know, with sort of a hierarchy, with sort of territories, with sort of exact, you know, sort of job descriptions, for lack of a better word, whereas Schultz really is just a street corner thug who got rich. That his, his gang is still mostly his old buddies from his street corner thug days. He's not doing anything particularly pioneering. He's making his money through bootlegging, which, while it required a lot of guile and violence and force, didn't require too many brains to become, you know, the top bootlegger in the Bronx. Luciano, on the other hand, has more of an international look. He's involving, um, you know, international drug smuggling operations. And he's very much looking at modeling organized crime after uh, a legitimate corporation that you have sort of a, you know, board of managers or board of directors, if you want to call that. Uh, you have sort of territories, you have certain rules of, you know, you have certain etiquette uh, that he wants to sort of be more than just a street corner thug with a lot of money. And that is a huge difference between Schultz and Luciano at this point. Schultz never really grew up in a lot of ways that, again, he was still the same street corner thug he'd always been. He was just more powerful at this point and had more money and more gangsters behind him. Very much a localized phenomenon. Schultz was very big in New York City, particularly, uh, you know, the Bronx and a few other places, but was not big in such outside of New York. He had contacts outside of New York City, but he was not a power base as Luciano was already establishing himself uh, internationally at that time. Luciano proposed a new way for the mob to be run like a business, with its very own board of directors that would come to be known as the Commission. Selwyn Rabb. It was composed essentially of the New York families and other families that they welcomed in. And that they would be sort of the security council, the board of directors. Whenever there was any disputes, they could resolve it. Lucky, of course, would be one of the leaders of this new organized crime syndicate. And Schultz, as another big-time New York boss, expected to join him. But violent reputations like Schultz's were exactly what the mob now wanted to avoid. Eric Desenhall. Judge Schultz's great flaw was he could not get along with other people and he was unwilling to compromise. And a lot of the ability to get along in the mob during that time uh, was to reach accommodations with other people. It was not all about you and your ego. Uh, as much as people thought of that about mobsters that they was all about dominance, the irony is a lot of it was can you get along with other people? Can you make money for other people? Lucky and other mobsters made sure there would never be a place for Dutch Schultz on the commission. And when Rothstein's rackets were shared out, 
Dutch got nothing. And he was not a guy uh, who was really able to reach accommodations with other people. It was his way or you're dead. After the 1933 repeal of Prohibition, Schultz was desperate for a new revenue. The former beer baron spotted a business ripe for hostile takeover in Harlem. Schultz and his violent crew muscled into Harlem's thriving gambling rackets and protection operations. But Dutch was still clinging to the old ways of doing business. While Luciano's empire grew by giving all his men a stake, Dutch kept all his money for himself and only paid his gang a miserly wage. Mutiny was inevitable, and in 1930, tensions broke, led by one of Schultz's most trusted and most dangerous gang members, Vincent Mad Dog Cole. So Vincent Cole up and decides, I want more say in the Schultz organization. I want to share the profits, because Schultz at this time had everyone on straight salary. And I want a share of authority. I want to be able to sort of have a voice at the table. Uh, and Schultz really rejected this. Schultz is just too much of a hothead and has too much pride in a way to sort of give in to any of Vincent Cole's demands. And he just doesn't have that sort of compromising gene that people like Arnold Rothstein, Lucky Luciano has. So began one of the bloodiest feuds in New York's history. Cole is close to being clinically insane, that, you know, if Schultz was fearless, Cole was almost suicidal in his fearlessness. And so Cole, you know, violently breaks off, and and as a sort of a slap in the face, Cole at this time had been uh, charged with carrying a concealed weapon. Uh, under New York law. And Schultz was uh, in court. Schultz had put up $10,000 in bail money for Vincent Cole, and he would have gotten it back if Cole had showed up. Cole doesn't show up at trial, so that means Schultz loses $10,000. So number one, you know, not only has his right-hand man sort of violently broken off, but he's, you know, screwed him out of $10,000, which if you're Dutch Schultz is just unforgivable. Cole storms out, and you've got two hotheads going at each other. It's war, it's very violent, even by New York gangster standards. It's just, you know, hell on the streets. And both sides are not willing to negotiate. They're just shooting at each other. Cole decides to start taking out uh, Dutch Schultz's drivers. Dutch Schultz retaliates by killing Vincent Cole's brother, who had pretty much nothing to do with this antagonism or anything. And it just descended from there. The people of New York had never seen such violence. Fifty people died on the streets of the city in just nine months. It was exactly the kind of open warfare that Lucky Luciano had been trying to end. Luciano realized if you could do it non-violently and get away with it, it was a lot better than doing it violently. Then in the long run, too much violence brought too much attention, too much attention from law enforcement, and that could be your undoing. Public violence was something that gangsters at this time were starting to abhor, that they were perfectly happy with little private acts of violence or, you know, something happening in a back alley. But shooting it out on the street in broad daylight was bad for business. It got a lot of bad publicity. And police, even if they were in the pay of the local gangsters, kind of felt obliged to do something about it and politicians were under a lot of pressure to do something about it. So other gangsters were quite appalled by this war between Dutch Schultz and Vincent Cole, um, especially 
that it seemed kind of pointless in a way because Schultz probably could have come up with a much more peaceful solution uh, other than sort of engaging in fights with machine guns on the street. Dutch Schultz had set in motion a violent chain of events that would eventually lead to his downfall. In the next episode, Dutch Schultz's reign of violence would lead to more deaths. He does not react very well at all when his personal associates sort of turn on him. He takes this personally, and he takes this revenge personally. Including that of an innocent child. That led into the horrific incident in which Vincent Cole and his gangsters shot up a bunch of children uh, by trying to hit one of Dutch Schultz's associates on the street. He became America's public enemy number one. And he's starting to attract the eye of the police. He's starting to attract the eye of politicians. And you've got people who are uh, coming into power like uh, Mayor LaGuardia, and he really wants to clean up the city and he really targets people like Dutch Schultz. Until he was finally brought to justice. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks to the Black Tux, Ship Station, and Dollar Shave Club for supporting this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows.